You're about to hear my conversation with Dustin Rader, Chief Fixed Income Strategist. We talk all about the current environment, including what's happening at the Fed, Bank of Canada, and in China, and also why our fixed income team is long duration and long the US dollar. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with Dustin Raid. Dustin is our Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Dustin, welcome back. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. I am looking forward to the, today's conversation because bond markets seem to be uh, in various uh, parts disarray, I'll call it. Um, I, I'd like to start talking about the Fed meeting, the most recent Fed meeting uh, where uh, Powell came out and hiked by 50 basis points. Uh, there was some significant market reactions to some of the comments that he made. Uh, I'd love to start by getting your take on, uh, on that Fed meeting. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely been uh, a very active market in the last few weeks since uh, you and I spoke on uh, on the podcast. Uh, the Fed meeting last week was uh, was an interesting one for sure. I think a lot of people were going into the meeting expecting not a lot of fireworks, and clearly the price action. I would say not not only in fixed income but across asset classes uh, has has probably su- suggested otherwise. Um, there was a little bit of discussion around, 50, uh, sorry, 75 basis points in terms of a hike going into the meeting, and uh, that was obviously that was obviously not done. Uh, and Powell opted for uh, for 50. And during the press conference, he really um, uh, pushed pushed the notion of doing 75s at least immediately um, aside. I think the I think the market. Uh, broadly speaking, when I say the market, you know, just across assets, really had had it had the initial reaction to the Fed's um, message wrong. I think the market took it as very dovish. Right. Uh, originally, kind of lopping off the the seventy five basis point tail and saying, "Okay, well that that's good news," and you know, equities were relatively euphoric on the Wednesday afternoon and. Uh, you know, I was chatting with the team, obviously, throughout and, and thereafter on Wednesday. And I said, you know, I just don't I just don't see what's changed um, because the Fed is, well, first of all, it's not a forecast for us. So we really don't know anything in, in granular detail about what's going on. But um, you know, I don't think anything's I don't think anything's changed. I think this Fed still really wants to get to neutral. And then. <laughs> the the new the new buzzword from the Fed is expeditiously, and Powell used it. I actually lost count, but I would say at least half a dozen times, if not seven or eight, in his uh, 45, 50 minute press conference, which is, which is a lot of time, a lot of times for uh, <clears throat> for that particular word. And I think that he was really trying to hammer home the notion that you know, this, this Fed, given where things are at at this point, are you know, is going to be moving relatively quickly, i.e. expeditiously, and get to, you know, the so-called neutral rate. And there was another part in the um, in the press conference as well, which really talked about the notion that uh, the Fed may need to actually uh, move rates higher, um, uh, for a neutral rate higher, and that could be coming. Oh, I interpreted it as the Fed that could be coming um, at the June FOMC, um, and so I kind of took those two things. 
you're going to continue to move quickly, even though you might be past peak inflation, at least from an annual perspective. And you might be moving rates to at least neutral, which, by the way, might be actually higher than where it was uh, stated in March. And that is uh, that, that that's going to be a very significant that's going to be a very significant thing. So what we've seen uh, as of as of Thursday is a uh, obviously a very significant sell off in uh, in global risk and uh, global risk sentiment being uh, I would say heavily heavily dented, and you're seeing that. Uh, from an equities perspective, and uh, frankly, you're seeing it uh, so so significantly on an, from an equities perspective that you're seeing a uh, generally, although it, there's a lot of back and forth, but you're seeing I think investors pile into the short end of the uh, of the of the yield curve just for uh, a quick safe haven play, and let's see what let's see what happens. So even though you've had a what I think is a relatively consistently uh, hawkish Fed, although not necessarily becoming more hawkish, but a consistently hawkish Fed, you've seen front-end yields move lower. But I think that's more a function of what's happening on, again, equities and the sell-off in equities, people just looking for a short-term safe haven. And the yield curve steepening as a result, generally speaking. Um, and I would I would not expect that to um, <clears throat> continue to, to be the pace. And, and I think that the recession talk... Um, in the U.S. is and in markets is 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 growing and um, you know with with a recession uh, discussion and a Fed that I think is going to be very vigilant and um, and front load rate hikes uh, the, this concern over lower growth is going to be uh, becoming the predominant theme for markets if it if it hasn't already obviously we've been trading off of inflation broadly speaking in a very tight labor market for a, a long period of time here probably almost every podcast that you know we you and I have done together sure. in this space but at, at some point this theme of lower growth slower growth recession or stagflation you know pick one or a bunch uh, is going to is going to be the uh, is going to be the theme du jour and i think that we're getting there. Uh, clearly, the market's starting to shift in that direction, and I think that you know flatteners here uh, from a from a fixed income perspective are, are probably going to be the uh, the right the right trade from a shape of a curve mm. perspective. Uh, obviously, global risk sentiment and how equities and high beta uh, assets perform are going to be a uh, a significant uh, a significant impact as to how quickly the the yield curve can flatten. Great. Uh, maybe just a few follow-up questions on uh, on the Fed um, in general. Sure. You mentioned yep. neutral rates going higher potentially. Mm -hmm. um, yep. What's your view on how high that neutral rate can get to? So one of the things, uh, <clears throat> it's a great question. One of the things that I think even you know we've talked about on this podcast before is I've always had a tough time believing that 2.4%, um, which is where the Fed believes neutral is, or at least it did believe where neutral is, 2.4% in this economy, and by this economy, I mean with inflation running where it's at, you know, over 8% mm -hmm. on headline, and the job market being, I would say, beyond full employment. I mean, exceptionally, sure. exceptionally tight, right? You've got 1.9 job vacancies in the US for every person looking for a job. I mean, it's right. really, I mean, it's really, really tight market. That's why you're seeing wages going up. So I never, I never really believed that 2.4% rounded it was was the right number. So I think that that number is probably 
275 and maybe even three. You know, but as I as I always as I always say, or at least often say, doesn't necessarily matter what I think. It matters what I think the Fed thinks, and I think that the Fed has is coming around to that notion. And I think those that are watching this really really closely would would say that Powell uh, at the May FOMC press conference. Gave the beginnings of an of an opening that would suggest that the Fed is about to move their view around neutral higher, and 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 this sounds very academic to uh, listeners, and and that that's absolutely a fair point, but the Fed has essentially said that it's it wants to get to neutral and then see see what's happening with inflation, right. with the output data, i.e., growth, with the labor market, and. It wouldn't necessarily say this, but it obviously wants to see what's happening with asset classes, particularly, I would say, equities as you know, outright level and the yield curve from a, you know, how flat is it or, or is it inverted? Um, so the getting to neutral, quote unquote, expeditiously, uh, Powell's words, is very important because whatever that, wherever that number is and that extra 50 basis points or 25 or 37 and a half basis points or wherever, um, is important because the Fed's pr- probably going to keep going unless something really ugly happens between now and then. The Fed's probably going to keep going to wherever that neutral rate is, and right. um, you know, until, until you know, just to try and quell inflation. And I, I would say the Fed is. If, if there will be many opinions within the Fed, and, and and not even two. I mean, there's going to be a bunch. And you just had. Uh, New York Fed President Williams out today, and he's he's very much an academic, and he even said earlier that uh, he, you know he, uh, Fed, Fed's not entirely sure where neutral is. So it is a bit of a it is a bit more art than science, believe it or not. Um, but I think I think two seventy five here is a is a reasonable a reasonable estimate, and okay. uh, I don't think that'll be too far off. I guess you know, and then the follow-on will be, you know, will the Fed then feel that it will need to go above neutral and, sure. uh, you know, kind of tighten economic conditions or financial conditions uh, even further? Right. Um, so that's a lot of color on the rate side. Uh, makes a lot of sense you, that they're uh, forging to neutral and then sort of pause to to take a look at the the data. Uh, I'm curious on the quantitative tightening side. Mm-hmm. How much of a yep. role does that have to play um, with uh, with the Fed actions? And um, are you seeing any impact of, of uh, quantitative tightening today? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I, I would say that if you... <laughs> If you talk to some people at the Fed, they would actually say we did we did seventy five basis points in in May, right? Uh, Fifty via regular rate hikes, Fed funds, and our announcement for quantitative tightening is really worth twenty five basis points. Sure. To be fair, over, you know, for the for the year, um, but in some view, in some in some people's views, they would absolutely say that you know we did more more than fifty. At, at the May meeting. And so that's how the Fed views it. I think uh, broadly speaking, the Fed thinks quantitative tightening the way they're going to do it over probably a three-year span, two to three years, or probably three, is worth roughly 25 basis points worth of tightening uh, a year. The Fed um, basically came in as expected. They had given some forward guidance around the quantitative tightening story that made I think the announcement uh, in May for implementation in June less of a 
less of a market event. And they, they are going to eventually get to 95, rolling off the balance sheet, 95 billion a month, a mixture of treasuries and agencies, um, and treasury securities and agency securities. And they'll take about three months to do that. So start in June. And then I think by September, they're going to get up to uh, the 95 billion pace per month. They, they opted to uh, not actively sell um, uh, securities from from the from the balance sheet, uh, which again was ex- it was expected for the, for them to not to not actively sell. So no no surprise there, and there's still a little bit of discussion. I think depending on how the mortgage market develops, that they may start selling some uh, some agency debt, some mortgage backed security debt from the balance sheet actively. Uh, later this year, uh, but now mortgages, thirty-year uh, fixed mortgages in the U.S. have moved up so quickly. Um, right. Maybe, maybe that's not necessary. We'll kind of have to see how that goes. But thirty-year fixed mortgages, I think, are now uh, average are running around five and a half percent or so, right. um, and those, yeah, those have moved a lot in the last mm-hmm. uh, uh, three or four months. Um, so we'll see how that develops. There are, I mean, to do everything at the Fed. It sounds obvious, but it, but sometimes it's worth reminding. You you need a vote. You need votes. And right. you know, do you have do you have enough votes to actually move to an active selling regime from uh, at least on the on the agency side, the mortgage backed security side, um, with within the committee? And right now, I I would say looking at it and talking to people, they don't have the votes. There are maybe a small handful of people that are interested in actively selling mortgage backed securities from the. Uh, from the balance sheet later this year, so I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's there. That could obviously change, uh, but I, I don't think that, I don't think that the votes are there. And I was actually using the same kind of analogy for seventy-five. And again, it's you know somewhat obvious, but right. you, you need to have, you need to have the votes to actually go seventy-five. And kind of looking at the tea leaves going into the meeting, very challenging to see where all those votes were going to come from. And I just, I didn't think they, I didn't think they had it. So. Um, yeah, so I think that it's an interesting part on the market side. The curve's been really whippy um, since yeah. uh, since the, since the meeting, and obviously since our, our last discussion. Um, there there are there are actually really two well thought out schools of thought on QT and impact on the yield curve, and, and I guess they are the obvious. One is that it would cause uh, a steepening of the yield curve. And one, it would cause a bit of a flattening. The the steepening side is basically there's just not as much demand for that um, paper anymore because your biggest buyer, the, the Fed, is gone. So therefore, um, uh, uh, you know, you, you could see you could see yields uh, move higher. Um, the other uh, the long end yields move higher. The other side of the coin is that um, <clears throat> there would need to be. Uh, uh, an issuance, uh, an issuance uh, change on on the front end, on the front end side, and that and that would cause a uh, a rise in front end rates. And and by front end rates, I don't even mean necessarily twos and threes. I mean kind of anything inside uh, a year, like T bills, basically. And uh, and that was going to cause uh, a kind of a different a different reaction. I think the I think the, the jury is still out on that one, and we'll have to see how. We'll have to see how things play out. There's a whole nother side of it, which is what does the Treasury do uh, in response to the Fed's change in Q, in quantitative tightening? Because the Treasury can come in and issue a bunch of debt and and basically fix the uh, or at least put the su- the supply demand uh, curves in, in in back in a little bit of balance after the Fed comes out and. Uh, 
it remained you know, the Fed had sorry the Treasury had a bit of a uh, had a, had a refunding announcement the same day as the Fed meeting and uh, you know it's it's to me it's still kind of TBD how how that whole story plays out so uh, personally I think that the the fundamental story and the inflation story and the recession story or at least fears of recession story are having much more impact on the yield curve and I think that's fine with the with the Fed the Fed would although not use this term again because uh, it got uh, it got in trouble the first time but the Fed would prefer this quantitative tightening stuff to just be on autopilot in the background right. and not be a driver uh, and just kind of let it do its thing and it's just chunking away in the background and thanks very much and uh, let nothing to see here and let's focus on let's focus on uh, Fed funds policy as the main as the main conduit of monetary policy perfect. Um, that's great context on the Fed. I'd like to turn now to Bank of Canada, which appears sure. to be acting in lockstep with the Fed. Um, yep. And for, for some of the top-down conditions are similar, a very tight labor market, high inflation. Um, yep. in, in Canada, we have uh, the commodity that we're benefiting from a, a little bit more than the U.S. Do you think that yep. the Bank of Canada actually does uh, act in lockstep with the Fed, or should we expect something different? So the bank is definitely very interested in what the Fed is doing. You you would be hard-pressed to see at, at a press conference anyone senior from the Bank of Canada say that they're watching what the Fed is doing um, you know, very actively because uh, obviously it wants to show and, and is uh, you know, independent. Uh, but <clears throat> whatever the Fed does is going to be significant for, for the Bank of Canada. I think that when the Fed... Well, let's say let's put it this way: If the Fed changes its uh, let's let's do fifties for the next few meetings uh, outlook, uh, that that would probably have an impact on the bank. You know, my my general view since last year, which I'm still kind of holding on to, um, is that the Bank of Canada would not out hawk, so to speak, the Fed. So the the Fed would hike more than the bank, uh, uh, and I would say that. I, I, that's probably that's probably still my view. Um, the inflation numbers here domestically in Canada are lower. I mean, they're still obviously very high, but they they are lower um, right. than the than than in the U.S. And uh, I I do think that the the economy here is is generally more fragile. Uh, you know, the 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 full employment like full employment here the number for full employment is clearly a lot higher than it is in um, in, in the U.S. And by so by that I mean you know, full employment here is probably around, I don't know, 5%, something like that, give or take plus or minus 50 basis points. And in the U.S., that number is probably 3.5%. So there's a little, it's a little higher beta economy here. And so I, I, on the margin, I would say if there's a risk, it would be that the bank here probably doesn't want to <clears throat> over-tighten. Uh, and then there's a couple other things I think are interesting if the bank did over tighten here, or at least kind of out hawked the Fed, in theory, although there's much more drivers going on, but it would probably work as an, uh, a driver that uh, that appreciates the U.S. dollar versus, uh, sorry, appreciates the Canadian dollar versus the right. U.S. dollar. And I think coming out of all that everybody's been through, and we are very much an export-led economy, um, that the bank would probably, on the margin, not want to 
uh, I appreciate the U.S. dollar against the U.S. dollar. They would probably want to do something on the margin. And then the other thing I would say is the housing market here, and, and I sit in Toronto, so I'm, I'm a little I'm a little bit biased because I see a lot of that local news. But there's obviously, you know, a housing market across the country, uh, which means very very important to the banks' outlook and um, and policy and policy uh, settings. But I. I, I feel that because the the uh, the Canadian consumer is so much more leveraged now than the U.S. consumer after the U.S. consumer really deleveraged after 07, 08, 09. Right. And the housing market here is uh, so much more important in terms of people's disposable income versus the U.S. on average. That uh, the and and the mortgage market here is structured whereby there are much more variable rate mortgages as a percentage of people taking mortgages versus the U.S. That the banks obviously very very Bank Canada is obviously very very aware of that and understands that if it continues to be very very hawkish, it's going to have a very very significant impact on the housing market very quickly. And I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has already heard anecdotal stories. Um, around housing market uh, slowing and, and we're, right. we're barely into the, uh, you know, I would say the third inning of, of the sure. hiking cycle. So um, I, all those factors put together, I, I, I still I still think that the bank here will not out hawk the Fed. It doesn't mean that uh, they won't hike rates. They absolutely will hike rates and very much it's the same narrative as, um, you know, as the U.S. They, I feel like the bank here, Bank Canada does want to get to neutral and see where things are at, take a look around. Maybe it does need to go above neutral at that point. Have to obviously see what's happening with inflation, the labor market, I would say particularly here, the housing market, um, you know, asset classes, you know, what the Fed's doing, uh, you know, everything, right? It's, it's, very, it's a very dynamic process. And, you know, where where is the the domestic economy? I mean, clearly the bank uh, after the April meeting, Bank Canada after the April meeting feels that we are above, uh, above uh, full capacity for uh, for the economy, and that's having a, an inflationary push higher. So those are all kind of things that the, I know the bank likes to look at, and um, we'll see how we'll see how things develop. But it, it is it is very likely that the Fed and and the Bank of Canada are going to be doing at least two, if not three, more fifty basis point hikes. Um, uh, just, just to kind of, just to kind of get things going. I would say, I would say at least, at least two each, um, because right. I think that that's going to get that's going to get them closer to neutral. The sooner these banks get to neutral, the more optionality they're going to have. And from my somewhat brief time uh, working at at the bank here, uh, and knowing how a lot of these banks work, all banks create all, all banks crave optionality, and they they want to be they they really want to be able to pivot as quickly as possible if necessary. And I think that because uh, the inflation numbers have been so high here and in the U.S., and uh, you're definitely seeing it start to percolate through on the on the wages side. Right. Um, there there is a, a some concern. I wouldn't say it's a major concern. There's some concern of a wage price spiral getting uh you know getting going or very early innings um and getting it getting to neutral gives you optionality to accelerate that if you think that's actually a problem or or to stop if you think that that's not going to be a problem so i think that's i think the bank here very much wants to get to neutral similar to the fed so the first part of the cycle to kind of get to neutral i think is going to be very much lockstep what happens thereafter 
that's where you might actually start to see a little bit of daylight between the bank I see. and the Fed. Makes a lot of sense, Dustin. Um, why don't we uh, conclude today's podcast by talking about China? Um, China, uh, most recently, uh, the headlines are all about the COVID, zero COVID policy, uh, major lockdowns of Shanghai, Beijing, other cities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It does feel like China is almost in a different part of the cycle than the rest of the world. Love your take on uh, China and uh, Bank of China in general. Yeah, it's, it's, it is very fascinating. And, and obviously, the you know, it's unfortunate that the COVID situation continues to be uh, a, a very significant issue and, and, and a ne- negative issue, really, and driver in China and uh, seeing, obviously, a, a lot of lockdowns. And uh, this was something we were a, a little bit concerned about as a team earlier in the year and, um, you know, something something we've been watching. And it, ha- it has implications on a few things. But I, I, I and I think your, your question is really interesting because, China very much is on a different uh, cycle. You know, we spent a good chunk of this podcast talking about higher rates and uh, particularly policy rates. And, you know, China has been easing rates and I think will continue to ease rates. Uh, so not only on and not only on the monetary side, but also do quite a bit on the fiscal side in terms of uh, what I call tweaks, uh, whether it's the property market or uh easier credit for banks or commodities or uh, a whole a whole list of, of various things that the, that the, um, the, the Chinese government uh, has the ability to do and has a lot of levers at its disposal um, so I think that's uh, that I think that's uh, an interesting thing you've got uh, a stated growth real growth target this year in China five and a half percent I think that's going to be tough to get to uh, with so many people in large cities locked down. I think the output data is already starting to turn, sure. and you're looking, you're seeing some of the uh, some of the PMI data out of out of China really drop very quickly over a two month period. Um, some of the some of the data has dropped well below the 50-50 kind of boom bust neutral line and into the 30s, and and that generally means a very very significant economic slowdown is either at hand or or right or right ahead of you. And um, I think that has implications for the bank uh, there, PBOC. I think that the bank will have to remain very, very accommodative, very easy, uh, probably uh, easing its triple R uh, rate again, I would say, uh, either later in Q2 or in Q3. And I think even the big um, medium-term lending facility rate will probably have to get eased as well um, to kind of keep credit as abundant and flowing and easy uh, as possible. Um, so I, I think that that has interesting implications for China uh, as a whole. I think for uh, some EM um, because uh, China growth is going to be is, is going to be very very slow, and that's China is obviously a very significant portion of global uh, of global GDP. Uh, I think uh, the, the prices story is also very challenging. The CPI inflation story is also very challenging in uh, in China because of all this, and you've seen. Uh, probably, at least from my perspective, what I find very, very interesting is <clears throat> you've seen um, the Chinese currency weaken pretty significantly. I wouldn't call it a, a devaluation per se, but I would call it a uh, an interesting depreciation from, at least from a U.S. dollar perspective, from the mid 630s to um, the mid 670s over the last few weeks, which is not a uh, not a small move, um, and it's the biggest move we've had, I think, since 2015. And uh, so it's a pretty significant move here. And um, 
I think a weaker currency, weaker domestic currency for China is probably very, very helpful given what's right. happening on the lockdown side, COVID side, the output side, and any, you know, to be able to export at a cheaper domestic currency obviously helps on the margin. Uh, sure. There's even talk that um, the U.S. might uh, lower or loosen some of these uh, uh, tariffs that, that have been put on since the Trump administration called that, obviously, and uh, to try and to try and help things out. So I think that um, I think there's a uh, I think there's a, a lot of interesting things happening in China. One thing we we I mean we are very focused on, particularly uh, particularly myself, is on uh, on the currency side, and I think that authorities are really not overly upset about having a weaker currency and they're, they're relatively okay with the move. Um, you've seen this, the China fixing, the fixing for the basket um, move uh, move higher, i.e. i.e. The, the domestic currency lower, depreciating um, in, you know, a, a relatively linear uh, secession here over the last three or four weeks. And I, I, I think that that I think that directionality, although I think a lot of the moves happen, but I think that directionality is probably happening. Seven uh, dollar CNY, um, dollar China, seven uh, seven point zero zero is kind of the the big number, and um, I think a lot of people, particularly in the leverage money space, the hedge fund space, are. Uh, looking for that move to to move higher, and, and I would say I, I'm I'm probably on that that train as well. Um, okay, it feels to me like uh, authorities are okay doing this, and and you have a little, you have an opportunity to do so. If I were there, that's what I would do, given the domestic right. situation. But also, the dollar is generally bid across, kind of all, almost all currencies, and uh, right. and you're also seeing pretty big. Uh, Although it's kind of stopped in the last few days, but generally pretty big uh, move higher in dollar uh, uh, yen uh, with the uh, with the Bank of Japan uh, kind of non move over the past little bit, and so I think that's um, I think that's probably uh, pretty been pretty significant in terms of uh, allowing uh, Chinese authorities to kind of okay let's get let's get some of this done here in the next in the, in the next little bit and uh, and depreciate the currency. That's great, uh, Dustin. Um, maybe uh, just as we conclude, give me one or two things that you've been doing in your portfolios or the fixed income portfolios as a result of everything that you've just laid out for us uh, today. So we obviously spend a lot of time on the duration side um, and, uh, and and managing that. I would say that um, uh, as as we are getting closer to the end of what we think is peak inflation, although I continue to believe that we will see relatively solid monthly prints, but um, as we get closer to the end of peak duration, we've been adding back duration in the longer end. Um, uh, as we think that the longer end gets uh, higher and higher, we think it 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 it, uh, it uh, looks like a, a better value a better value trade. So we've been. Doing that, um, and I would also say we've been very closely watching and managing our Dollar Canada hedges. Dollar okay. CAD has uh, kind of broken through the top end of its range here in the last couple of days, above above one thirty. Um, my my general view on the Canadian dollar, as I'm sure many people uh, know, is you know whatever your view is on risk should basically be your view on the Canadian dollar. If you think that sure. risk is going to sell off, then want to be short Canadian dollar if you think that risk is going to be uh, pretty solid uh, then uh, then you want to be long Canadian dollar so 
you know, with the equity sell-off we've seen in the past little bit, dollar CAD's moved higher, and I think we've been uh, watching and uh, you know, we're generally structurally long U.S. dollars in a lot of our portfolios and managing managing that hedge. Um, but the vol space has been very expensive, so haven't necessarily done a lot of options, but just kind of managing the, uh, the hedge ratios in the spot. And I think. Um, you know, again, depending on your view on risk, and I'm still very skittish about risk here in the next little bit, although we've obviously had a pretty good recalibration in the last few days. But I do think that right. uh, um, I do think that markets will remain very, very choppy here for the next little bit, um, you know, all, all asset classes. And I think that that probably is not overly constructive for uh, the Canadian dollar. And this this happens at points in the cycle when you have and I was alluding to it before, but changes in big themes, right? I think we're in the process of moving away from inflation and a tight labor market to, okay, what's next? And is it recession? Is it low growth? Is it uh, prolonged? Is it stagflation? You know, what, like, what does it look like? And as we kind of move into that theme and it becomes more pronounced, you get, I think, um, a little more volatility and a little more kind of chop in the market. And I, I think... I think we're in the process of kind of migrating to that next era, that next theme. And so I would expect that chop in markets to kind of be with us here for the next uh, the next little bit. So we're obviously, again, to go back to your original question, you know, we're managing kind of positions that are maybe a little more on the high beta side and, uh, you know, being absolutely sure we either want to be in those or do we want to be pairing those back Um you know, to be prepared for any maybe prolonged chop that might last a little bit more than a couple of weeks sort of thing. So those are those are some of the things that we're looking at on the, uh, on the fixed income side from a uh, portfolio manager perspective. Dustin, that's great. Thanks so much for spending uh, so much time with us today. I really appreciate the guidance through what is a very dynamic fixed income market. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 